Thank you guys for joining us. My name is Tom, and I am the lead pastor here, and we're in a teaching series on the book of Revelation, the very last book in the Bible written by a man named John to a group of the first Christians around the year 95 AD living in the midst of the Roman Empire, the most powerful superpower that existed at, at that time. And John wrote... He wrote prophetically, he wrote pastorally, and he wrote in something called an apocalyptic genre, which means there's all sorts of crazy images and metaphors and numbers and things that his readers, his first readers, would have understood. And it makes it difficult for us to understand. The Bible itself has been misused, abused, confused, throughout the course of history and no book in the bible maybe more so than the than the book of revelation and part of that is the symbolism and the genre and stuff that that it was written in um part of it is some foolhardy people doing things like trying to pick the date of jesus's return part of it and maybe this is the worst part and where we're going to spend a little bit of time on today is some people with some sketchy theology got together with some people who had some money and made some movies and some books and those things that came out of those movies and those books have actually taken the place in the mind of most of the western christian world as the source material for what god has to say about how he's going to make everything right in the end and so we're going to we're going to try and um, we're going to try and unlearn some stuff this morning. And I'm going to ask your forgiveness and grace up front that if I poke one of your sacred cows in the eye, it's because I love you. Um, and if this stuff is new to you and you're, just, you're still trying to figure out who Jesus is and Revelation just seems like the farthest thing removed from, from everyday life, um, I would ask your patience because all of this points to the gift that God gave us in, in scripture, right? And that there is a reading of the, the Bible, specifically of Revelation, that, um, that should encourage us to become more like Jesus today and help us to fear less about tomorrow. That's one of the biggest things I hear about the book of Revelation. It's scary. I'm just, we're gonna, we're gonna let it go. We're just pretend like it's not there. And that's not good either because all of scripture, all of it, is given to us by God for our good and for, for his glory. So um, we're going we're gonna to start by, I titled this, this sermon, Revelation is not dot, dot, dot. And so that's where we're going to start, talking about some of the things that Revelation is not. And the first one is it's not linear. Its timeline doesn't start in chapter 1 and end in chapter 2 directly through. Okay, right off the bat, we're going to get really confusing. And I'm going to try to explain that with the help of a little colorful chart. If you look at the book of Revelation, the first five chapters go in a chronological order. The last three to four-ish chapters go in chronological order. Everything else in between runs on its own timeline. Okay? The seals, trumpets, and bowls are... As we read through, and if you guys are reading along with us this morning, um, or this week, you read things in like chapters 12, 13, 14, 15. 
about Satan falling from, from heaven and about um, a prostitute and a dragon and about beasts. All those things have their own timeline. And like the Satan, the Satan timeline is a flashback, right? It's like a Quentin Tarantino movie. In the middle of the story going forward, it jumps back to like way before Jesus was born. I started, the bowls, the trumpets, the seals. God's judgment is compared to, or these things, seals, trumpets, bowls, are used to describe God's judgment. And if you were to read through Revelation in a linear fashion, it would feel like 21 different kinds of judgment that God is going to bring to earth. What There is a strong sense of scholarship right now that those are not 21 different forms of judgment, but they're three different lenses, three different camera angles on the same judgment, right? And this is where we have to take a step back and realize John is crazy about numbers, the author, John. He uses numbers to help communicate his point. There are seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. There's three sets. Seven is God's number, is a biblical number for completeness and wholeness, Three in the Bible, right? And later on in Revelation, we see holy, holy, holy. God is perfectly holy. Three is a representation of perfect in the Bible. So we have the sevens for completeness, and then we have the three versions of seven that are complete. It's perfect. It's God's perfect judgment that's going to happen in the end. All right, are we confused yet? Right? So the point is, Revelation is not... Linear. It doesn't start at point A and end at point Z without doing some back and forth and all over the place. Revelation is not history written in advance. Right? We talked about how prophecy can ab- absolutely be predicting the future, but it's also about speaking truth in the present moment. Eugene Peterson, brilliant pastor, author, has this to say. There are to be sure references to the past and implications for the future, but the predominant emphasis of the prophetic word is on the now. There are predictive elements in some prophecy and some in the revelation, but they are always in service to the present message. The Bible warns against neurotic interest in the future and escapist fantasy into the future. The point of revelation is not to help us predict the future. The point of revelation is Jesus. Revelation is not written to 21st century America. Um, We talked about this last week. It was written to people in the year 95 in the Roman Empire. And viewing it through a modern Western lens confuses things even more. We shouldn't be asking things like, well, who is the beast or who are the armies from the north? We should be asking things like, what did the first audience think those things meant? Right? That's the lens which we should be viewing this stuff through. Revelation is not a guide to foreign policy. There's a, a book. Oh, so, um, Eddie, could you hand out the, the notes? Um, on the back of this week's notes is, it's not a complete bibliography of everything that I've used for this series, but there's a lot in there. And a guy by the name of Michael Gorman wrote a book called Reading Revelation Responsibly. And it's, um, it's a lot less academic. It's a lot easier to read. So if you want to do some of your own outside reading, outside research, I would highly recommend reading Revelation responsibly, amongst those other things. 
But um, Gorman had this to say in terms of what, what has happened, what people have done to the book of Revelation. In addition to the liturgical worship and aesthetic dimensions of Revelation, its inherently political character has also inflamed imaginations. On the one hand, there is the bizarre stuff, the identification of popes, political figures, and others as the Antichrist, and the dangerous pseudo-messiahs like Jim Jones in Guyana misleading the gullible, or politicians influenced by particular readings of Revelation shaping U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this one in, in a few minutes. But Revelation was not meant to help guide 21st century America in its foreign policy. It's not an excuse for exclusion or violence. When we read this through American eyes and we align ourselves with certain parties in Revelation, it can give us a sense of superiority, a sense of condescension. You add that with the literal reading of armies from the north and people trying to predict through the, who the armies of the north are. And we've used this term in other discussions, but it others people. It makes people less than if they happen to fall in those groups. Right? It's not this this book and again in a minute we're gonna get more, but the mass media adaptations of Revelation have taken this and and made it violent and made it violent against specific groups of people and it's a horrible horrible misreading of the actual text revelation is not meant to scare us there are scary images in the book of revelation so we got to remember right the apocalyptic genre john was given the task of expressing the inexpressible god gave him a vision or visions of earthly circumstances through a heavenly lens. And then John had to use the limitations of words to try to communicate those things. And in doing so, it can be really scary. If we look at the beginning, middle, of end of Revelation, it's pointing us to Jesus and not just pointing us to Jesus. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17 John recognizes Jesus and he falls down on his face and Jesus stoops down and he puts his hand on his shoulder and he says, do not be afraid. The end of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 17, says, come all you who are thirsty and receive living water. Right? People who are in need, people who are hurt, God doesn't want to scare people away. He wants to draw them to himself, even through the book of Revelation. All right, so how, all these things that Revelation is not, how did, we, how did we get here? We've talked a lot about recognizing genre. When we fail to recognize genre as apocalyptic and things are, have symbolism and metaphor and we translate them literally, it's a problem. We fail to recognize the historical context. I'm not going to beat a dead horse. We did that. Um, assuming prophecy and history culminates in the present. That makes the last... 2,000 years of history, like the, Rev the book of Revelation, irrelevant to the, the history. Like, it's a, again, it's a very egocentric perspective on this is about us, our time, and what it's saying directly to us. Yes, written for us, but not to us. <clears throat> Treating Revelation like a decoder ring. We cannot put Revelation on top of a newspaper and expect to make sense of it. Right? We can't if we look, try to like, oh, this is going on over there. That's what this means. The European Union is the ten heads on the beast. 
Well, that was right up until they started adding more countries and it got no longer 10, it didn't work. Preoccupation with unknowable aspects. Again, trying to identify the Antichrist or the armies from the north or the timing or there's things that we aren't meant to know. Jesus tells us that. You're, nobody knows the hour and the day except the Father alone. And so we, we should not get preoccupied with this stuff. And the last bullet on here is a limited hearing. That means we have become fixated on, let's call it, the last 50 years, maybe as much as 150 years of theology and scholarship. There's almost two millennia of scholarship and deep, good thinking about the book of Revelation that has got completely chucked out the window and replaced by what we're about to see, this combination of sketchy theology and, and mass media publication. <clears throat> there is more, there are way better scholars, more accurate, more responsible, than, and some of you will recognize these names, some of them, it won't mean anything to you, but Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins, Hal Lindsey, David Jeremiah, there's a lot better thought out there than what those guys represent. Okay. This is the last part of how we got here. And I go ahead, everybody can roll your eyes, look at the words. Pre-tribulation, pre-millennial dispensationalism. And the reason why I'm bothering to put the terms up there is because this is a very specific view of the end times of the book of Revelation that has uh, made 25-ish million in movies. I mean, by blockbuster standards, it's not much, but they're big Hollywood movies, like mainstream productions. 16 different books from the Left Behind series. That doesn't count the kids' spinoff or the graphic novels. The movie, The Late Great Planet Earth, when it was released in 1970, was the number one movie in the country for the year, all movies, right? And it's about the book of Revelation. So we have to pay a little bit of attention to this. Even if those names or those movies or books don't mean anything to you, it's what happens when, when sketchy theology comes together with, I don't, I, I'm not gonna attribute motives to anybody, but when when we don't take the time to read scripture carefully under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and together in community, we can get carried away with some crazy thinking that makes Revelation scary, that makes it confusing, that abuses it. All right, ready? So here's the premillennial, pre-tribulation dispensationalism. Well, let me go back a second. So dispensationalism is a, a theological framework that some guys, John Darby, Charles Ryrie, um, Schofield, they, they came up with to help them read the Bible. And a dispensation is a period of time. And according to them, there are seven-ish dispensations throughout history. Another thing that's very important to them is a supposed literal reading of the Bible. You have to read the Bible literally unless, you know, it's the, your very last choice is to not read the Bible literally. That has caused them to make some distinctions between Israel. So if you're familiar with the Bible, the story of the Old Testament is about the people of God as the nation of Israel. 
Jesus comes along and fulfills everything that God wanted and hoped for the people of Israel. And he opens the door to the promises that were for Israel to everybody else. You come to Israel, or you come to, to Jesus, and all of the promises that God had for Israel are fulfilled and can be yours. In dispensationalism, the church and Israel are two separate things forever and ever. And right now, we operate in kind of like a parenthetical note in history. When Jesus died and rose again, dispensationalism says we push pause on the timeline. And God is working with the church right now. And then when we get right to this, this mess in here, that's when the ch God is done with the church and he moves on to going back. He goes back to Israel. There's some really problematic stuff in here. So this idea of a rapture, right? Here's your first sacred cow that I'm going to poke in the eye. Um, this dispensationalist suggests that Jesus comes back secretly for the church. And this is what the, the premise of these movies are. It's like, you better be ready. You don't want to miss the rapture. You don't want to miss the rapture because Jesus is going to come and nobody's going to know when he's coming and you're going to wake up and your spouse is going to be gone. Just their pajamas is going to be sitting there in bed. You're going to be driving to work and the person you're carpooling with is going to poof out of the, driving, the driver's wheel and you're going to get in an accident because they were driving and they're gone and up to be with Jesus and you're still here. And then, so God comes, and that's the church, right? God takes the church out, pushes play on the timeline, and he starts to deal with everybody else who's left, left behind. Um, yeah, go ahead. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, and then after, there's this terrible seven years in here. Well, it's, it's actually a terrible, the Antichrist comes along, and makes some false promises and everybody loves him and he rules the world for three and a half years and then he reneges on all the promises and everything goes horribly wrong for another three and a half years that idea is taken from the old testament book of daniel for a literal they literally translate 70 weeks daniel makes a prophecy about 70 weeks scholars say the weeks equal years seven times 70 is 490 years that's the way the verse is written, seven sets of 70, 490 years. So even, even if any of that is, is accurate, right? Jesus comes along, and the math works up until week 69. Jesus comes along, and he, he dies, and he, and he rises again. So you would think in the next seven years, it would all come crashing down, and again, Jesus would come back. That's not what happens. Again, that pause button gets pushed, and the 70th week doesn't start until the rapture at whatever point that is. Right, you're all looking at me like my dogs look at me when I ask them something. <laughs> it's, it's confusing and it's complicated and it's not biblical. Here. Also, so another Old Testament prophecy gets read literally, and that there will be a third temple. There were two temples in ancient Jerusalem that were both destroyed. The prophecy says that there will be a third temple, and at which point 
the temple will be rebuilt, the priesthood will be re-implemented, and there will be animal sacrifices again in the temple. This is like borderline heretical. I don't throw the H word around. If that stuff happens, it means that Jesus' death and resurrection wasn't enough. There's no need for animal sacrifices. Animal sacrifices were a pointer to what Jesus was going to do on the cross when he sacrificed himself for our sins. And in the New Testament book of Hebrews, we read that there are no, there's no longer a need for those sacrifices year after year after year because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. There's not a need for a priest to mediate between God and man because Jesus tore the veil, right? When he died, we read in the Gospels that the veil that separated man from God was torn. And now through Jesus, we have access to God. And that third temple that gets predicted is actually when God makes everything right, brings heaven and earth together again. It's he is the temple. His presence with the people he is the temple. So, it's, it just, it's a complete, um, I was going to try to be gracious when I did this. <laughs> I got like, got like really worked up thinking about it. Um, it. It doesn't, it does not honor the scripture, right? This take on things does not honor the scripture. And when, when we bring it together, with the, the books that got really popular. And it's really, um, I don't know, coincidental is the right word, but Left Behind, the Left Behind book series came out in the mid-90s. And if you lived through like the Y2K scare, there was a lot of kind of biblical rhetoric that got attached to it. And people were scared about getting left behind or preparing to be left behind. Our neighbors, when we lived in Arkansas, they had 55-gallon drums filled with water, 55-gallon drums filled with w flour and wheat. and Like, they were literally, like, ready for everything to come crashing down. Um, so it was the timing of, of big events, like Y2K, um, the world wars in the, in the 19th century or the 20th century, um, some other historical events, combined with this theology, you layer on um, the, the Hollywood effect and the New York Times bestseller effect, and this grabbed hold of a people, of us, because we didn't bother to do our, our homework. And it got, it, it still kind of runs rampant in some churches. There were seminaries that attached themselves to this back in the 50s and 60s, 70s, and helped spread it. And so they were sending pastors out into the world who were, who were spreading this, this theology. And academically, this line of thinking is like almost gone. But it's still got a stranglehold on the general, the general public. Um, what this leads to, some not great stuff. Literal application. So in, I spent... I don't know if I'm going to recover. I watched, this week I watched the first Left Behind movie. I watched The Late Great Planet Earth. I, um, I watched The Thief in the Night. Uh, and they're all Hollywood adaptations of the Revelation rapture scenario. And at best, they're like terrible cinema. And at worst, they're fear-mongering. And I, didn't, I haven't watched like the, the later Left Behind movies, but it's actually 
Christians taking up weapons, submachine guns, and fighting non-Christians, like, love your enemies. You guys remember, like, does that, that Jesus said that, and Jesus isn't changing. He's not changing. Uh, <clears throat> we become susceptible to this idea of a literal application. It's anxiety-inducing. Please don't go watch any of those movies that I just said, right? Like, I'm, I'm a little shaken, and I don't, like, it's just, the, the, I've kind of mentioned this in passing a little bit, the idea of anxiety ethics. There are people, literally, who, and um, they didn't go to college because the rapture was coming, right? They made really horrible choices. The rapture's coming. I haven't had sex yet. I better go have sex right now before I miss out that on, on that opportunity, right? Like, terrible life decisions because, <laughs> and it seems antithetical, but because they were afraid, period, because people were afraid, scared by this idea of, of the rapture. Escapist, fatalistic approach to life, it's kind of self-explanatory. If you don't like it here and now, great, the rapture's coming, doesn't matter, I'm not gonna, not gonna be here when things get bad. The fatalistic is kind of the, the opposite take on that, but still, it's just so bad, so what does it matter? What does it matter how I treat anyone or anybody? And then we already talked about the, the egocentric. So, um, in, your, in your notes, I want to encourage you to go look at these three things for yourselves. The idea of Israel and the church, the idea of the rapture and the return, and the idea of temple sacrifice and priesthood. Kind of the, that circle that I drew and the ideas in scripture that were plucked out of there and, and misinterpreted and misapplied. The first verse in each of these sections is the verse got, that got misconstrued. And then all the verses, and I, just for space and for time, I just put one verse in that represents that dispensational line of thinking. There are, there are more. Um, the verses after that are the corrective verses, right? The corrective verses for the Israel and church being separate. The corrective verses for there being a separate rapture and return. The corrective verses for there being a re-implementation of temple sacrifice. Um, I'm just going to show you, this is, this is the one, one reference. Instead, the dispensationalists would have us believe that Israel and the church are two separate things, and it causes a lot of that confusion in that, in that timeline. Throughout the New Testament, we read verses like this. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, that now, nor is there male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. The promises were made to him about a people and a land and promises to bless all nations. If you are in Christ, you are Abraham's seed. The church, through Jesus, is the fulfillment of Israel. There's one people of God. Does that make sense? So, like I said, I would encourage you to, um, to look at those, those other verses that are in there. So, this is what happens if we take... Remember, if you got... So, a couple weeks ago when we started, I, I presented you with the idea of presuppositions. 
We all have them, and it's fine. We can't avoid them. We come to life. We come to the Bible. We come to the, the text with an idea of how things are meant to be. If we are not willing to update our presuppositions as we take in more information, as we receive a corrective, then we get stuck, right? So we take a framework based on some sketchy theology and we come to a difficult text like the book of Revelation with even more difficult pieces and then we try to force it into that theological framework and we create something that is ripe for confusion, abuse, and misuse. There is a way, and not just, not, not just I'm not saying the way that I'm, I'm saying this is the only way, right? But there is a way to read revelation such that it does bring hope and comfort and challenge. There is a way to read Revelation where we keep Jesus as the slaughtered lamb. There's an image that we're going to talk about next week that Jesus is the slaughtered lamb. It's reflective of the Passover lamb from ancient Israel, and Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. And that's the central image of the book of Revelation. Not the Antichrist, not the tribulation, not the armies from the north, not when it's all going to happen. Jesus. And in that view we can have faith that the justice of God will be done and it won't turn into a John Wick movie. You can laugh at that. That's okay. And not just justice, like God is going to do away with evil. Sin and evil and death will be gone forever. But there will be personal justice. The Bible tells us that everything is going to be made new those people in our lives for whom our hearts break, those relationships, the physical trauma, the mental trauma, it's all going to be made new and it's all going to be restored. And because we have that to look forward to, we have Jesus who offers that to us, we can live now like we're living a new creation. We can live lifestyles of worship, responding to the greatness and glory of God. We can live in a way that subverts and resists the evil that we see all around us. We can live faithfully, and we can persevere, and we can endure. All for the sake of the way John puts it, for the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. Let's pray. Jesus, you gave us um, a great book, but it's got some difficult parts. We thank you that you don't leave us alone um, to fend for ourselves. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that um, gives us your mind to help us understand these things. We thank you for the gift of community, for others who we can turn to um, and ask our questions and um, be real with about how we feel about the text and, and what it does to us. And um, Jesus, we just ask that you would open our hearts and our minds and that we would be able to read this text differently, that we would be able to recapture it for you in a way that um, does bring us hope and comfort and challenge. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you. Amen.